Well, good morning. morning. Hey, that's good. Thank you. Good to see you again. Thank you for being here today and for allowing Carol Ann and me to be. We really look forward to this. We've preached in churches where Wes has served on staff, but uh, for him to be the pastor, this is really neat. Uh, We've never done that before. We helped you welcome him year or so ago, and just glad to see you again. So thank you. I hope you join us this week. It's going to be a great time together, and we're going to look at the Word of God and how it applies to us, and we'll just thank you for uh, the privilege of being here. Now, Wes is my grandson. Y'all knew that, right? So my, in my humble but accurate opinion, you really got a good one when you got him here. So I want you to know that. (laughs) All right. Now, I want you to get your Bibles. We're going to look at the Scripture every every service we have tonight, tomorrow night, Tuesday night. By the way, all of you are welcome to come. Uh, But we want to stay by the Word of God. I want you to open it to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. To one of the great passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Beginning at verse 37, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit For the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What an incredible passage of Scripture. Now, that Scripture sat on my desk for 18 months because I thought it was wonderful. The statement was great, but I was missing something. Anyone thirsty, let him come and drink. That's good. Well, what is the setting for it? I learned something again, which uh, preachers often forget. The important thing when you study Scripture is to know the context of it. So in this passage, he says, on the last and most important day of the festival. Well, the first question is, what festival? There are about seven Jewish festivals. And uh, which festival is it? Well, you go back to verse 2, this 7th chapter, and it says that the festival of booths, or the festival of tabernacles, uh, my translation says the festival of shelters, uh, is the festival. Now, we'll, we'll call it the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the happiest, most celebrated festival of the Jews. Josephus, the great Jewish historian from that time, said it was the happiest and the holiest of all of the festivals. Now, that's quite a statement, because Passover is one of the festivals, which commemorates uh, the promised Messiah that would come. And and certainly that is what the Jews love, the festival of tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a nonstop celebration. You can read about it in Leviticus 23. We won't go there, but it describes what they're supposed to do. Here's what was supposed to happen. They had several requirements for this feast. First of all, the people were told to move out of their homes and build a shelter or a booth. 
This is Texas, isn't it? Or a lean-to. Now, you know what a lean-to is. Uh, to build a shelter. And, and Leviticus 23 tells them how to do it. They were to pick branches from certain trees. They were to bring those together and build the booths out of those branches of the trees. They were instructed how to do it because they wanted to leave enough space between the leaves, uh, the, uh, uh, the bushes that they, that they trimmed. They wanted to leave some space so the wind could blow through it and so they could see the sun and the stars and the moon and all of these things, some specific things. So that was the first thing. They had to move out. Now, during this time, the whole city was covered with lean-tos, with shelters, little tabernacles. Everywhere, the roofs of the buildings were, were, were basically flat, so many of them built them on top of, the, of their roofs. They were through the city and along the city streets in the old city of Jerusalem. Everywhere you looked, there were people living during these days of the feast. Now, originally, there were seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, and the eighth day was what they called a, 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 day, a day of special uh, solemn assembly. But by the New Testament time, the Jews had sort of brought that solemn assembly into it. And so the Feast of Tabernacles now was eight days by the time we read this scripture. That's why it says on the last and most important day. That was the day of spiritual commitment. That was the day of solemn assembly. That was the day where the people were going to get, do business with God in a very special way. So this was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, they, they went nonstop. Some, some folks say they don't think anybody ever slept during that week. For instance, the men and women were not allowed to sit together in the Jewish synagogue. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, they built grandstands. They could never look down where the men worshipped. There was an there was area for the women. There was an area for the Gentiles. There was an area for the men, the Jewish men. Women couldn't go in there. But during this feast, they built grandstands. And the women looked right down into the area where the men were. That was unusual. Then they built 50-foot tall poles around the perimeter of the temple. In the top of those poles, there was a, a container for, for fuel, for oil, and they had lanterns. And they, they would light those lanterns. And all through these eight days, you could see young Jewish priests scurrying up and down those uh, poles to put new oil so that the light would never go out. It was a time of unbelievable celebration. They had games. Uh, have you ever been to a carnival? Some of you have. Uh, it, it's chaos. Lots of activities, lots of, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was, an incredible time of jubilance, an incredible time of, of excitement and celebration. They loved this week. It was something else. Now, every day, every day during the Feast of the Tabernacles, there was a ceremony, and the ceremony was led by the high priest. Every day, the high priest and a group of priests with him would take a picture and they would walk out of the temple area and down to the water gate, through the water gate and down to the pool of Siloam. They all had these silver pitchers and they would dip the water in the, their pitchers in the water of the pool of Siloam and then they would turn and they would come back up because it was way down from the temple area. They'd come back up to the water gate 
And as they passed through the water gate, uh, they would uh, quote Isaiah 12, 3, with joy shall you drink water from the wells of salvation. And the people would line from the water gate all the way to the temple. They were there with their branches they'd been instructed to bring. They would wave those branches and they would roar and cheer. I mean, this was a festive time for them. Around the perimeter of the temple, there were 21 trumpets. And when they come into the, to the temple area itself, those trumpets would blast triumphantly, kind of like... Uh, when they had a football game, they, the band would go, charge! That's kind of what it was. It, it was an, such an exciting time. And, uh, and so when, they, when that procession came through the water gate, the people lining that would wave those branches. It's enough to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. I mean, it was an incredible time. Everyone was enthralled with that. Then they would come into the big altar area, and they would march around the altar once, then the high priest, and one by one the others, take that pitcher, pour it into a giant funnel. Water would spin around until it splashed on the great rock where the altar was. And it was like when the Cowboys short score touchdown. I mean, it was the roaring, waving of hands, shouting, praising God. It was a celebration. You can't imagine how much celebration went into this. Now, they did this every day. On the seventh day, that was the last day, though, they did this. On the eighth day, the last day, the most important day, because something's going to happen on that day, did not happen the first seven days. Oh, they did what I described. Those priests came out of the temple, down to the water gate, through the gate, down to the pool of Siloam, had their pitchers, came back up, went through the water gate, came back into the temple and into the altar area. But two, two changes. On that day, the day we just read about, they marched seven times around the altar, which was a commemoration of the sevenfold circuit of, of Jericho when the children of Israel marched around it seven times and then blew their horns and smashed their, their lanterns and... and uh, Everybody shouted, and the walls came tumbling down. Remember that? Well, that was, that was seven times commemorating the victory in Jericho. And then the priest would come to that funnel in which they poured water, and he raised the pitcher, and when he turned it up, there was no water in the pitcher. The pitcher was empty. Messiah has not yet come. The promised Messiah that God has said we, we still expect him to come. The Messiah has been promised, and, and, but there, the, the, the promise is unfulfilled, and there was no water in the pitcher. Now, at that moment, when instead of a cheer of excitement and victory and celebration, there was deathly silence. Jesus stood up. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He interrupted the ceremony. He broke into the service. Now, this is a dynamic proclamation. Uh, let, let me it said now these two words at the first are very important. He stood up and he cried out. Now, those are significant words. Jewish rabbis never stood up 
to teach. The only ones who stood in public to address the people were emissaries of the government, the governor or Caesar. Of course, we know that Jesus was there as an emissary of God himself. But he stood up. If I were a Jewish rabbi speaking to you today, I'd be sitting down. I've been in Jerusalem on the beginning of the Sabbath and watched the yeshiva students come down and uh, come with their, their, whoever their mentor was, and uh, they would bring a cloth to cover the table and bring scrolls for the scripture. And when the rabbi sat down, then he would speak. Jewish rabbis never stood to teach. Don't you remember Matthew chapter 5? I bet you never noticed this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, And when he had sat down, then he preached. So that word is it's a, it's a dead giveaway. Something, something different is happening here. Uh, he shouldn't be standing. He ought to be seated. But he stood up. So that, that's significant. And then the word cried out is a very unique word in the Greek language. It only appears in the Gospel of John. It appears in the first chapter when John the Baptist is seen as crying out in the wilderness. It's in the 11th chapter when Jesus cried out to Lazarus to come forth from the grave. And then it's twice uh, here in, the, uh, in our 7th chapter. And, and it's, a, it's a dynamic word. It's, it's a word full of meaning. It, it, it speaks of energy and action and expectation and celebration. He cried out. Now, those two words, stood up, cried out, dynamic proclamation. And they're the key for us getting the meaning of this special passage of Scripture. Now, he offers a great provision and just an absolute unlimited provision. He said, if anyone is thirsty. Now, what he does, uh, to, he, he describes what, what is the need of mankind, and he, and he just used the word thirsty. Now, we don't know much about thirsty. We get thirsty, we just stop at Big Macs or Chick-fil-A or somewhere and get us a drink. Wasn't that easy back then? They had a real limited number of McDonald's back then. <laughs> Water was not easy to get. And dying of thirst may be one of the most painful way to die that there is. Your tongue seems like it's wrapped in cotton. Most of us have had that feeling. But if it extends, the tongue will roll itself up like a scroll, and you'll end up smothering yourself to death. They understood thirst. And Jesus said, if any of you are thirsty, any of you are thirsty. Now, what was he saying? He was saying, whatever your need is, I can provide it. I can meet that need. Whatever you need, I can provide the solution to what you need. If you're thirsty, whatever that is, come to me and drink. So he described it. Now, is it, is it possible God could do that? 
Could he possibly? We're a pleasure-crazed society. We love our football. It's entertainment, you know. Pretty brutal, but it's entertainment. We love our sports, our recreation. Uh, we all, who are as old as I am, look forward to retirement. We love certain things. And uh, Jesus just says, whatever it is you really love. You, you love pleasure? Could, could he give us pleasure? Psalm 1611 says that at the, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forever. Oh, you think you have to go to Satan, to the world, to get pleasures. If you want real pleasures, pleasures that won't leave you a hangover, uh, pleasures that won't come back and bite you later. If you want real pleasure that gave real satisfaction, Jesus says, I can give you that. I can give you a life full of pleasure. It won't be an inappropriate pleasure. It won't be a pleasure that you can, can control. And, and, and it'll, be, it'll be pleasure that only God can give. He gives us pleasure. So if you need pleasure, Jesus said, I can satisfy that. Is it because you want to be somebody? You want significance? Now, don't, no, don't let little piousness squeak, squeak in here. We all want to be significant. Not any of us want to feel like that it didn't make any difference that we, ever, that we were alive. We all kind of want to be recognized. That, that's innate. Well, could Jesus really give us that? Absolutely. John told the churches in Asia Minor, you're a kingdom of priests and kings. And First Peter talks about we are, we are a, 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 a royal family. Listen, do you know what the thing about Christianity that most people don't think about? In Christianity, everybody's somebody. Amen. Nobody's nobody. Now, I know we kind of like to say these, these people are more important than these people. No, everybody's somebody. When I got, uh, was called to my first church, my father, who was a pastor, he said, son, he says, treat everybody with kindness because everybody's having a hard time. Isn't that true? When I preach to you, I ought to be a hurting man preaching to hurting people. Uh, we, we just face things that are challenging for us. And, uh, and, and we want people to care about us. Jesus said, I can do that. I care about you. I love you. Gave myself so that you could not have to suffer the eternal consequences of sin. You're somebody special. You want to be special? Jesus says, I can take care of that. You need comfort? You've been walking through a dark valley. I talked this morning to one of my dear friends who right now is in a battle for his life with leukemia. Tra uh, chemo. Soon radiation. Could God give someone comfort? In a time like that? Absolutely. 2 Corinthians, first chapter. God says to us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so we can enjoy being comforted. No, 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 that's not what he said. Who comforts us in all of our affliction, so we can comfort others in their affliction. Oh, hey, 
just this is a little extra. I didn't plan on this. God doesn't give you grace till you need it. He doesn't give you grace just so you can enjoy having grace. He gives you grace always for a special purpose, a special meaning. And, and I, I've seen people, I had friends who struggled and struggled, and, and I, I said, I couldn't do that. And when I think that way, God kind of whispers in my ear, you don't have to. But when you do, you'll be able to do it. Whatever you need, whatever comfort you need, Jesus says, I can take care of that. Anyone's thirsty. Doesn't describe it. He just says anything, anyone. And it's universal. Anyone, anywhere, anytime, any place. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. Well, I have to move on, but you, you might ask, how do we drink the water? Well, he I love John because he's so simple. In verse uh, 39 there, he says, as many as believed. It's, it's very simple. You, you receive it. You believe it. By faith, you receive it. You're not saved because you understand everything about God. If you did, you'd be God. You're not God. You're saved by faith. And it's not a leap in the dark like liberalism says. It's a deep in, in, into, the, in, into the confidence that we have in God because He keeps His Word and He promises to walk with us every moment of our lives. Oh, just in case you didn't realize this, in Psalm 139... God spoke and said, before you were ever conceived, I had already written a record of your entire life. Uh, what, I'm, what I want you to see is, you don't face anything God's surprised at. God never says, oops. <laughs> he never says, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. You know, God, God has, He knows everything you're going to experience. And before, before you back off too quickly from that, He watched His own Son die on the cross. That must have brought showers of tears from weeping angels. But imagine what it did to the heart of God. God is a holy God. That is, that's the very nature of God. He's holy. When Jesus died on the cross, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Wow. You talk about pain to the heart of God. God understands your pain. God understands what you're going through. And uh, He wants to give you comfort. Well, I could go on and list a whole bunch of things. You need faith. You need forgiveness. Could God forgive me? Absolutely. First John says, if, he, if we confess our sins, He's faithful just to forgive us our sins. Uh, on and on and on I go. The things that we long for in this life, Jesus says, give me a chance, I'll take care of it. An incredible, incredible provision that He offers. Now there are two things. He has described it, but now there's a demand that goes with it. You're not saved simply because Jesus died on the cross. You're saved because by faith you receive what happened on the cross. He paid the price for your sin. Oh, now you can pay for your sins. You have to die and go to hell to do it. And there's nobody returned from hell. So Jesus made it possible for us to be forgiven, to be saved now. But He demands something from us. 
Now, I know you're probably not much different from me. I, I get to thinking about that thing. Oh, good, I'm going to get to help God out. He wants something from me. Well, what does he want you to do? Come and drink. What's required to come to Jesus? You have to learn catechism, or you have to uh, learn spiritual rituals and things. You have to memorize so many scriptures. What, what, what qualifies you to come to Jesus? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? That's all. Do you have a need that you can't supply? Do you have a need that you cannot provide for yourself? That's all required. Come. Oh, he also says, come and drink. Come and drink. Now, I get thirsty when I preach this sermon. <laughs> you notice I have a bottle of water here. Uh, let's, let's drink a drink, okay? How was it? <laughs> oh, you, you didn't taste it? Well, try again. Is that any better? No. Listen carefully. There is a principle here. Nobody can drink it for you. You have to drink it yourself. I mean, that's how much God loves you and cares about you. You're not saved because your daddy was a preacher. Man, I'd be doubly saved. My granddad and daddy were both preachers. I have two brothers and son-in-law who are preachers, and a grandson and two other grandsons who are on church staff. I'm not saved because of their, all the things they do. I'm saved when I come to Christ and I receive what He offers. You can't do anything to get saved except receive it. Now, if I were in Germany like I was several years ago, I tried something, and I got them to give me a $20 German mark have no idea how much that is. And when I get to the point of inviting the folks to be saved, I, held, I said, how many of you like this, this German mark? Well, man, hands shot up everywhere. And I pointed to the lady right down there, and I said, she came up and I gave it to her. And, and I'm, I used it as the illustration. I said, look, she, had, she, get, she came and got it. She had to receive it in order to get it. She didn't do anything for it. And now it's hers. And she stood there a minute, and then she started to give it back to me. I said, no, no, I gave it to you. It's for you. You see, nobody can drink the water for you. Nobody can be saved for you. Nobody can respond to God for you. It doesn't matter how many, fam uh, how many uh, preachers you have in your family. It doesn't matter how many deacons in your family. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done. You just receive the offer of Jesus. Come and drink, and I'll satisfy it. Isn't that great? How could anybody turn that down? I mean, it'd be like saying to a coach, now we're going to hire you. We want you to know something. Number one, you'll never lose a game. We're going to pay you real good. What do you think he'd say? Wow, that's a good deal. It's not going to happen. But Jesus says, this is what I'll do. If you're thirsty, I'll provide what you need to quench the thirst in your heart. Doesn't matter whether it's a family problem. 
a marriage problem, whether it's a, a, a challenge at work, it doesn't matter what, what's involved. Whatever your need, Jesus says, I can handle that. Come and drink. And then he makes an incredible promise. Incredible promise. He, he says, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. You sang about that a while ago. Do you remember that song? Nod your head at me if you're awake, okay? I, I, I heard it. I know you did. We sang about that. The promise was that from deep within those who come and drink the water that Jesus offers, there will be a river of living water that flows from him. Let me put it another way. When you drink the water that Jesus offers, he doesn't give it to you for your pleasure. He gives it to you for you to be a distributor. He doesn't give it to you just because he loves you and is going to take you to heaven. That's wonderful enough. He gives it to us, and when he gives it to us, we immediately, as Paul put it, I'm in debt to everybody because God has done something in my life. And when you drink the water, God expects you to share it. Now, I got a picture. I asked God to give me a picture of the, what the church is like some years ago. And let me illustrate it this way. Well, let me, let me introduce it this way. There's always a certain mystery about great rivers in the world. Uh, the Nile River. There, there's still controversy today whether it's the White Nile or the Blue Nile. The White Nile over in the north there, and the uh, Blue Nile uh, over somewhere else in the west. Which one's really Nile River? They're still arguing about it. Well, the Mississippi River. At one point in the discovery of America, there came an interest in where does the Mississippi River come from? Now, you've ever been down to New Orleans and watched the Mississippi River roll by and into the Gulf, you know it's a pretty good sized body of water. Where'd it come from? And the, and the early pioneers tried to find the source of the Nile River. There was a man named Zebulon Pike. Zebulon Pike who uh, set out to find the headwaters of the Mississippi River. He did real good till he got to St. Louis. And at St. Louis, he took a left at the Missouri River. <laughs> and then the Kansas River. Next thing he knew, he was in Colorado. Now, to his benefit, he discovered Pike's Peak. Don't know how he could have missed it, but nevertheless, he, he discovered Pike's Peak. But he missed the headwaters of the Mississippi River. There's somebody, he should have gone straight in St. Louis. And the, the headwaters of the Mississippi River are up near Canada somewhere, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, some in that area. In that area. It, it was always, you know, a lot of mystery about these great rivers. Let me tell you about another one. High up in the Andes Mountains in South America, way up above the freeze line where the, where the ice never really melts, covers the rocks. If you look real closely on the day when the sun is just right and the wind's just right, you'll see a little bubble of water trace a hesitant course across the face of that ice-clad rock. And it gets to the bottom and it drops down to the next rock 
and joins other little bubbles of water. And before long, those little bubbles of water become little rivulets of water. Then they come, become little tributaries until 3,000 miles later, the Amazon River flows into the Atlantic Ocean at a rate of 7.3 7, 7 million cubic feet per second. Now think about that. I'll tell you something you probably don't know. Atlantic Ocean is fresh water for 60 miles where the river flows into the Atlantic Ocean. Incredible. That's what the church is to be. God put us here to give life. He, he put us here to, to be, give hope to people. He put us here to, to be the ingredient that keeps society sane and safe. Uh, he put us here to tell the story of Christ. And everywhere the church goes, there ought to be life. That's a picture of the church. Now let's get more personal. I've got just a couple of more minutes here. You go to Israel today, and I hope every one of you ought to go to Israel. Uh, I learned more in a week in Israel without any theological help, just by watching and seeing. Uh, it, it, it was a turning point in our lives. When Carolyn and I went in 1969, first time we went, been many times since. Everybody ought to do that. But if you were to go, you would find that there are basically two bodies of water in Israel. You have the Sea of Galilee, which is up up to the north, right on the Syrian and Lebanese border. It's not a big lake or, or sea. It's about 13 miles wide, long, and it's about six miles across. It's not very, oh, it's not very deep. It's only 150 feet deep. Sea of Galilee. But it's a life-giving body of water. Everywhere you go in Israel today, it's like an arboretum. I mean, it's like a flower garden. And it's because the water from the Sea of Galilee has been distributed all over the land, and, and, and it, it has caused the land to flourish and to come to life. The other body of water is the Dead Sea. You see, out of the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River flows. Now, if you're, if you're in a canoe, it's about 200 miles to the Dead Sea. If you're on a crow's back, it's only about 75. So it's a pretty crooked little old river goes down to the Dead Sea. Now the Dead Sea is dead. <laughs> Nothing lives in it. Oh, maybe some microscopic, oh, maybe, maybe big uh, particles are living. But the sea is dead. Do you know you could read the newspaper sitting up, sitting in the Dead Sea, and you wouldn't get the newspaper wet. You can't sink. It's incredible. Oh, here's, here's the punchline. Follow me now. The same water that's in the Sea of Galilee is in the Dead Sea. Same water. Why does one give life and the other give death? Well, there's the reason. The Sea of Galilee has three rivers from the northwest corner in Mount Hermon. When the snow melts in the mountains and when those rivers flow, they flow into the Sea of Galilee. So they receive water. The Sea of Galilee receives water. Out of the southeast end, the Jordan River goes. So it gives water. It receives water, 
and it gives water. And because it receives and because it gives, everything lives. Now the Dead Sea, beautiful body of water, clear. Oh, you can just see right to the bottom. It receives, it receives, and it receives. It never gives, and it dies. Now there's a story for us there. God never intended for us to get saved and then enjoy it, though we do enjoy it. He intended for us to get saved and give it away, to distribute that water. It never runs out. The more you give, the more you have. It never runs out. We're to distribute that water. And we've received water, and we give water. Now, paint you a brief picture. Here is the Sea of Galilee up to the north. Here's the Dead Sea down below. And you're going to be either a Sea of Galilee or a Dead Sea in your life. Are you going to be someone who's always wanting others to serve you, do something for you, please you, do what you want them to do? Don't like this, don't like that, grumble and complain. What, what kind of person? You'll be a dead sea. A dead sea. Or are you going to be one of those who celebrate the life of Jesus in you, who've accepted the challenge, and you give that challenge away to others, and you help them come to find Christ, and, and, and when you, uh, you come to church and you get fed, and then you can leave here, and you can, uh, if you're a teacher, you can go teach because you've received stuff, you receive truth, and you can deliver that truth. Uh, you, you see, you receive and you give. That's the Sea of Galilee. Now, I'm 87 years old. You notice I didn't walk up the steps. I can't do that by myself. I have to go where there's a rail. It didn't used to be like that. I used to bound up steps two at a time. Love to play basketball, football. Uh, can't do that anymore. You see, one of the things, and, and you older people listen to me for a minute. The older you get, you have to know your limitations. Nothing wrong with it. I think that my mind is still good. I can still speak. I just can't. Getting up here to preach is a lot harder than preaching. <laughs> it's hard. There are limitations. But listen, every one of us can be a part of what God's doing. Uh, we, we have a sweet little couple in our Sunday school class at our church in Euless. And uh, here some months ago, uh, she said, you know, I, I just don't feel like I'm doing anything. So I, I need to be doing something for God. And so we began to talk back and forth and swap emails. And, and uh, I got an email from her here a couple of weeks ago. She said, Brother Jimmy said, I'm praying for you. I can do that. Listen, the most important thing you can do is pray. God can do more in a minute than we can do in days. When God does something, He responds to the prayers of His people. We never get too old of that. I, 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 I'm praying constantly for my friend up in Cleveland, Tennessee, who's facing the fight of his life with leukemia. He may or may not make it. I pray for him. I can pray for him. Uh, listen, 
you're either going to be a dead sea where you just conclude life is over and you don't have anything to do or contribute and, and basically become a sourpuss, or you can be a Sea of Galilee and stay alive as long as you live. Let God use you. There's some things you can't do, but there are a lot of things you can do. God wants you just to receive the grace He gives you and take advantage of the opportunities that come with it. So I, I give an appeal to you today. Which are you going to be, a Dead Sea or a Sea of Galilee? Your choice. Nobody's going to make you do either one. You've got to make a decision. By God's grace, it's hard as we get older to do some of the things we used to do easily. But we can still do something. And, 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 and uh, the, the reason... I believe I can still do some things is because I did a lot of things I could do while I could do some other things. So we're not talking about have and have nots. We're not talking about can and can't. We're talking about a church of people who've been redeemed with the blood of the Lamb being a sea of Galilee and not a dead sea. It's your choice. I know this. I know that I'm in, if, if, I, if my life is a football game, I'm in the two-minute drill. But I'm not going to become a dead sea while I'm in that drill. Neither should you. Now, these days are days that we're going to examine ourselves. We're going to have some singing and some scripture and teaching. Hope you'll join us. But I hope today you won't leave it without making your decision. You may want to come forward. I haven't asked, but there's probably be somebody here at the front for you. We're going to have somebody at the front with us? Okay have somebody here. You might want to come and just pray here. You might want to just kneel on these steps. And, 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 and as one of our missionaries used to say, that everybody respected so greatly, Miss Bertha Smith, she said, do business with God. Do business with God. Maybe that's what you need to do. Give me two more minutes. <laughs> I was pastor of the First Southern Baptist Church, Dell City, Oklahoma. I was 34 years old. The church was the largest church in the state. It was well known all across Southern Baptist Convention. That church had led the Southern Baptist Convention in baptisms for several years. God only knows why he sent us to Dell City. I'm now pastoring the largest church in the state. Well known throughout the convention. And I guess I was kind of proud of that. Didn't mean to be. But young Deacon and I went to an associational meeting, and one of our prominent evangelists was uh, preaching that associational meeting. And when that invitation was given, God just got all over me. I mean, I knew I needed to do something. And I thought, you're the pastor of that big church. What are these people going to think if you go forward? I mean, things like that. And uh, I, I guess my struggle wasn't as quiet as I thought because my young deacon put his arm around my shoulder and he said, come on, Pastor, I'll go with you. And that young deacon led me to the altar for me to do business with God. I wouldn't take anything for that. Thank God for a young deacon who wasn't intimidated by his pastor.
and I did business with God. That's what I'm talking about today. Just, do you need to do business with God? If you do, you can do it there. You, there's nothing magic about walking down the aisles, except that it's your way of driving a stake and say, here's where I stand. This is where, this I'm committing to this. And so there's a value in a public move because it, it is a statement of what you're doing with God. You're saying, God, I'm all in. So you may want to do it where you will be standing in a moment. You may want to come and kneel and pray, whatever God leads you to do. You might want to unite with the church. Hey, this is a happy church. I mean, you'd be fortunate to be in this fellowship. Amen. If you've been visiting two or three times, won't you join? God will tell you. He'll give you, ask him. Just say, Lord, what do, you want, what do you want us to do? Maybe you've never been saved. Much of what I've been talking about is just kind of Greek to you. It's kind of foreign. Uh, you, you need to receive what Jesus offers. And, and he'll take you from there. This church will guide you from there. You might, today might be your day to say, I receive Christ as my Savior. Whatever it is, God's speaking to you. You know you need to do business with him. I'm going to ask you in a moment when we stand to respond. Father, thank you for your love and grace. And thank you for a story that emerges out of a, a passage that it's difficult sometimes to understand until you put it in its context of what it was about and when it happened and who was there and what did Jesus do. And, and Lord, may, may that understanding come in our hearts now and help us to know if we need to do business for you, unite with the church, trust Christ as Savior, or just let us respond as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?